I'm loving this series, though. I'm loving this series, the, the countercultural Christ we're in. Because I love rebels. When I was young, I was always even drawn to the rebel, even like Star Wars movies. I, I loved Han Solo, and I considered like uh, Luke Skywalker, he was like a goody-goody. Like, and everything good, and Hans was like the rebel, constantly pushing back against the system. And to this day, I still love it. I mean, listen, I so love, oh, I don't know if I tell a story. I so love rebels so much. When I was, when I was 15 years old, now, I had a good home life. My, a single mom, my mom worked hard. She raised us right. But you know when you're 15 years old, you think everything's better elsewhere. So at f- yes, you 15-year-olds. It's not. Trust me. <laughs> so at 15 years old, my, my big plan was, because I so was countercultural, I was going to run away, me and a friend, to Chicago, and we were going we to join the Hells Angels. That was my big plan. <laughs> so, so we're 15 years old. We... We, we pulled together like $500. There was a motorcycle for sale. We saw it on Main Street in Center Merchants. We go, we pretend we're 18 years old. The guy's like, you guys sure you're old enough to buy us? Like, absolutely. He didn't ask for ID. He just wanted the money, obviously. So we get the motorcycle, and for two weeks, never, I never had a dirt bike. We practice on this motorcycle, this Honda motorcycle, up and down this road. And after two weeks, we're like, that's it. We're hitting the road. So we... This is a true story. This is unfortunately a true story. So we, we get on a motorcycle. We start driving towards Chicago. We have $250. We're going we're gonna to go to Chicago and join the Hells Angels. Now, later in life, when I told a buddy of mine who's a Harley guy, he said, you were going to show up to a Hells Angels chapter on a Honda? <laughs> yeah. He said, you would not have come out. So we're, we're driving, and like, I'm, I'm excited, countercultural rebel. And we get to Jersey, and we're passing a mall. And I'm like, dude, let's, let's, let's stop at the mall. They may make some cute Jersey girls around or something like that. I'm at, my wife is from Jersey, so I could say that without getting in trouble. <laughs> and I, he's like, dude, we got $250. We're in Jersey. We have to get to Chicago. We can't go hang out in a mall. And I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> drop, drop. So he drops me off at the nearest police station. I walk in, I'm like, um, I ran away from home. I need to call my mom. <laughs> and my poor mother, who is the patron saint of an idiot son, and we have those categories here. Some of you moms are the patron saints. Some of you sons are the idiots. And she comes all the way from Long Island and comes and picks me up. But I just, I wanted to be a rebel. I always wanted that. Everything I did kind of when I was young, I just wanted to push back. I mean, I got tattoos before tattoos were cool. Now, every 17-year-old girl has a tattoo. So-and-so is my ride and die or something like that tattooed somewhere. It's just, I always wanted to push back. And I'm still like that in a lot of ways, and I admire that in people. I, I've never surfed a wave in my life, but I love when I watch a documentary or I read a story of, like, a guy who's a, a surfer, and he, he buys a little hut on a beach in the middle of nowhere, and he just surfs all day long. He, he refuses, he refuses to get sucked into what culture says success is. He's not seduced by it. He refuses to conform. The whole world running in one direction, and he's running in the other. And listen, for the teenagers in the room, it took a long time for me to learn this. You really want to be cool? Don't care what people think? Because people who are cool actually don't care to be cool. They just are who they are. And so my whole life, countercultural, and then when God begins to get a hold of my life in my 20s, 
I had a lot of preconceived notions of who Jesus was, but, but I really didn't realize how countercultural Jesus was at the time, even though I, I grew up in the church. My mom made me go to, I lived in her house. Those were the rules. I lived in a house. I had to go to church. And I wish church when I was a kid looked like this, because my church when I was a kid, it was Lucille, 82 years old, on the organ. We had hymnals and like three-hour church services. I, I, Pastor Blake, and one last story before I close, and then turn in like 20 last stories every single summer. I just losing my mind as a kid. So you guys are blessed. If you're in this church, oh my God, you have no clue. But I grew up hearing sermons. I grew up around Christians. And so when God got a hold of my life, I moved forward thinking, I, I kind of know who Jesus is. But I was wrong in a lot of ways because Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, he's radical and he's massively countercultural. He moves in a direction that is the exact opposite of the way culture moves and, and the norms of culture. And I know many of us are Christians here. I believe that. But we live in a world. We live in this world. And we are often shaped by the norms of this world more than we like to admit or more than we even know. We just kind of take them on. And they shape our Christianity instead of our Christianity shaping the way we flow in the world. So let's read this one. John chapter 4, uh, verses 3 through 18 and 27 through 34. So he left Judea, Jesus left Judea, went back once again to Galilee. Now, we had to go through Samaria, so we came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew? I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and, and so did his sons and their livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband, come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jump down to verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Let me just pray. Lord God, as we, as we get into this word, your word, your truth, I know I fail. 
I know I'm covered by grace. So is everyone here. So use imperfect people to deliver your perfect message. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that popped out to me in reading this in preparation for today was this, which is countercultural. Jesus didn't go, first point, momentarily low. He went in love. He didn't go low for a moment. He went in love. It says in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. Now, this isn't like when I was a teenager, I'd say, I had to go to church. Or, or, or you had to go out with dinner with your boss, even though he's a jerk. Or, or I had to go shopping with my wife, which is clearly deaf is the better option. Can we put that picture up there? <laughs> that poor, look at him. He's like, take me, Lord. <laughs> Listen, it, it, if you, ladies, if you have a man that goes shopping with you, keep him forever. He, he is a man of international significance. He is a diamond in the rough. Do not let him go. But, but those are the things we think of when had to. I had to do this. I had to go shopping with my wife. But when it says Jesus had to go to Samaria, it carries a different weight. It carries the weight of I had to save my child from the burning building. I, I had to save my child from drowning. In the, in the original language in which it's written, it carries force of sheer intensity, drive in love, passion. Jesus had to go, and he went in love. He didn't just momentarily go low. Now, what do I mean when I keep saying he didn't just momentarily go low? Well, go low for a moment. Society, culture, goes low for a moment. They stoop down off their high and mighty perch to momentarily throw a bone to the suffering or the hurting or people they feel really are beneath them. I mean, there are, there are, there are nurses, you've heard stories, who kill patients, and they say they do it because they're going low. I'm, 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 I'm just kind of helping them. But it's not done in love. They feel good about bending down, helping others quickly, momentarily. The poor, pitiful people, they need my help. That's the mentality of the world. Low, momentarily, come right back up to your position. You guys remember watching TV with, when commercials, remember this commercial? Can you throw this? It's, remember Sally's throw this? Feed the Christian children or whatever the organization was. You remember in the, this was probably 80s, 90s, you'd be watching Matlock, Magnum PI, 90210, any of these shows, right? And you'd be there on your comfy couch and you'd have your bowl of ice cream and you'd be sitting there all snugly and you felt good watching your show and all of a sudden this commercial would come on and you would start weeping like a baby. That's what happened. They, they, they raised a lot of money. It had a lot of impact. People would be watching TV, this commercial would come on, and they'd show these in-need children, and all of a sudden you'd be like, babe, or, or kids, get me the phone. And you have your ice cream there, and you're, you're in your jammies and your blanket, get me the phone, and they'd run over the phone, that phone. <laughs> you remember that cord? You could lasso cattle with that cord. I mean, really. Mom was on that thing, I'd be getting tripped in the, you know, in the kitchen, clotheslined. But then we would, we would get the phone, the world does, and we'd call 
I'd call, I just want to give a little bit of money, and I would feel better, and then I'd go right back to Matlock and ice cream and my comfy home. Low for a moment. Touched for a moment. Compassion for a moment. Short moment. And then bounce right back. That's the mentality. That's the mentality of culture. Jesus didn't go low for a moment. Jesus went in love. He wasn't looking to make himself feel less guilty. He wasn't looking to make himself feel good. He went into Samaria to see, to find this woman in love. That, that's what drove him. He wasn't like, I, I'm just going to spend a little time with this poor Samaritan woman. Now, if you know anything about the stories of the Samaritans in the Bible, they, they, were, they were considered half-breeds. They were, they were completely disregarded. They were considered trash people, garbage people, contaminated people, not just by the Jewish religious leaders. The entire Jewish population hated the Samaritans. It was racism to its max. Jews, Jesus, weren't supposed to spend time with Samaritans. And here's Jesus, not going low for a moment, but he's going in love. Not just let me stoop down for a moment. Let me, let me just give a 20 bucks to this, the poor white or brown or black or Asian girl I see. No, this isn't virtue signal. This isn't like you see the guy who, who brings the homeless guy a hot meal while his friend conveniently videos it and then posts it. Everyone's like, that's incredible. That's low for a moment. It's stooping down for a moment. Jesus did this with no audience. That's love. No reciprocal applause. That's love. That, that's what Jesus did. That's why it's so counter-cultural. Because most of what Jesus did in ministry was often with masses of people, yes, but one-on-one, -on -one, and no one was around to clap. Because he did it for the benefit of the person. When the, whole, when the, when the uh, Black Lives Matter rallies were, were going on, I was invited to speak at one. I spoke, my wife, my son, my mom, we marched because I, I, have, I grew up as a white man and I saw a lot of injustice. I had a lot of black friends. I was a big drug dealer. And I'd be driving around with ten dollars or $20,000 worth of coke or crack in my trunk and my black friends who were not drug dealers would get pulled over and their cars would be ripped apart. Not mine. So I dealt with that. It hit me. And so I, I, I saw injustice, and I acted. And, I, and there was a guy who was a, a local Long Island guy who was involved in the Black Lives Rally. Matter. He was a leader, black guy, great guy. And he tells, he tells stories of now, now years later, the same people that stood shoulder to shoulder him, they'd come around, wrap their arm around him and say, we, you know, we feel your pain. We, we see the injustice he says now not only do they not recognize him, he says he's seen a few where he is literally walking down the street on the side and they're coming toward him and they cross the street. Momentarily low does nothing. It does nothing. No one changed the world by going momentarily love. World changes happen by people going in love, not going low. Not momentarily low, but in love. That's it. Anyone can go momentary low. This is what happens. We got social media. I did this. I did this. And when Black Lives Matter happened, I watched. And all these people, white people I knew, and I, they would post in solidarity. And I knew they were racist. Well, I knew they cared nothing for those who were hurting. It was a joke. 
It was going low for a moment. Jesus sat with this woman alone, no audience. He was driven to go to Samaria in love. John 13, 35, by this, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples. If you go low momentarily, no. If you love one another. It's the only way people know us as Christians. Why? Because love is hard. It's so massively countercultural because love is not from this world. It's from God. It's otherworldly. And so anyone can go low for a moment, but can we love? During the Black Plague, when people were dying left and right, the entirety of the cities, the culture, flee, they left, they ran. And you know who ran into the cities to take care of those who were dying? Christians. Because going low for a moment in that situation would have said, oh, man, you're not feeling good. Let me get your blanket. I'm out of here. But love said, I'm going to be with you by your side until you die. It's a lot harder. It takes more from us. The second thing we see that clearly Jesus does, which is countercultural, is he built, second point, he built before dropping bombs. He built before dropping bombs. So, so he's spending time with a Samaritan woman. He's building relationship. She feels loved. She feels cared for. Right? He's not spending time with a, a poor girl, a despised girl, just so he can go low for a moment. Like we said, he genuinely loves her and is with her and doing what's best for her for her benefit. And so he built... And then we read in verse 16, 17, and 18, he told her, go call your husband, come back. She says, I have no husband. Here's the bomb. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. <laughs> what you said is quite true. I mean, that's, that's a bomb. That's, <laughs> and she just must have been like, what the? But Jesus wasn't doing this to embarrass her. He cared for her. He loved her. And guess what? She received it. Why? Because he built first. He didn't drop bombs first. There's times you have to tell people hard truths. There's times you have to tell people hard facts. You have to speak the truth in love. But the world, culture, culture just wants to drop bombs. Culture just wants to nuke people. You look different than me. You vote different than me. You act different than me. You are different than me. Nuke. Bomb. No building. And, and this is where I believe oftentimes the church, not Genesis Church, Roger has built a, an atmosphere, an environment, and a culture that is contrary to this, which is why I go to this church. But I remember after, churches still now I know of, but even after, remember 9-11 happens? I remember 9-11. I'm just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fresh baby Christian, maybe saved two years at the time. Married for a month. And I'm working at, at, at a lumberyard in Spionk, and World Trade Center happens, the world stops. And then like 24 hours later, 
Pat Robinson and Jerry Falwell are on TV saying, yeah, God, uh, this is God's judgment against the United States for, for homosexuality and abortion. I guess they conveniently left out slavery. God, God wasn't concerned about that. These people had an opportunity. Nation was decimated. Churches were, were getting flooded in by people because they were such in need of truth and answers. They needed bridges built. They needed to be built in love, led to Jesus. And these two guys just want to drop bombs. And it got so much play for months after that. I believe God always gets his man or his woman. But do you know how many people were delayed from coming into the kingdom in that moment because of that? Because of bomb. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. A national tragedy is we have not experienced, and I hope to God, in my lifetime, my kids' lifetime, your kids' lifetime, never have to experience again. But it was crushing to so many people because the entirety of the United States being a safe place was destroyed. It hit us on so many factors. And these two guys had an opportunity to build bridges and love millions of viewers, and that's what they said. That's what the world would have said. The world does say it. It blames Christians for everything now. It doesn't want to build, it just wants to blame. That's what the world does. And when the Christians turn around and do the same thing, we are acting, they are acting like the world. Jesus was countercultural. That's why I love you guys, I love everybody, but I, I, and, and I don't see it here, but I, got, I, go to, I go to battle with Christians when they're always talking about culture wars. Culture wars, wars imply explosions, killings, and bombs. You know who Jesus dropped bombs on first? Only people Jesus dropped bombs on first were religious, arrogant people. Jesus come and say, whitewashed tombs, dead. People are religiously shocked. And Jesus just dealt with a Samaritan woman and prostitutes and builds. Build. Then you can give people the truth. When people look into your eyes and know, this person loves me. I've seen them walk with me. I've seen them care for me. The world is going to nuke people. We were three years married once and once, well, we're still married, I hope. I'm always wanting to wake up like, she's still here. Praise God. <laughs> yeah. Got another day. Like in prison, you know, they mark the days that they're in prison. I mark the days she's still with me. Like, click, click. We're, we're, one day we're coming back. This is a long time ago. We were probably married three years at the time. Coming back from a big powerlifting meet, and we're in a minivan. And it's literally, no exaggeration, one, two, three, three, in a minivan, three 300-pound guys, um, a couple of 220-pound guys, and my wife. And then I'm in the second, third row. This other guy, who's a friend of mine, in the second row, and we start arguing. Now, again, I'm not trying to... I was a Christian, and then he's like, pull over. And it's getting heated. He's like, pull over the van. I'm like, let's pull over the van then. And all of a sudden, you hear my little cute wife say, John, you're being an idiot. And I'm like, I think I said something stupid back, and then... I regretted it greatly. But, but the thing is, listen to me. She stopped me in my tracks right there. Do you know why? Because we have a relationship. It's built. And when she gave me a hard truth, was it embarrassing? Yes. But did it have impact and weight? Yes. 
If someone who just was dropping bombs on me would have said that to me, it would have been a whole different game. I'm not saying I would have beat them up. I'm just saying it would have been a, a whole... <laughs> they're, like, they're like, Roger, why do you let this violent man who wanted to be a Hell's Angel preach? <laughs> and Roger will say, that's the church we are. <laughs> I love her. But, but she, she hit me with a bomb. It, 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 it hurt. But it stopped me cold in my tracks because... She, you know, we were only married three years ago, three years at that time. She never called me an idiot. Now, after 22 years, it, yeah, I've been called an idiot quite a few times. But at that time, I remember the weight of it, and I was embarrassed, but I was embarrassed for myself. Build before dropping bombs. Last thing we see Jesus did is he prioritized the soul over stuff. The soul over stuff. Verse 31, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. His disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The countercultural Jesus, he knew soul was the priority over stuff. And of course he knew that because he is the creator of soul and stuff. And he created stuff to be of a, maybe an, um, a, a little help or an accent to the soul, but the soul is the priority. The soul is what has to be prioritized. And this is complete, again, countercultural. It's opposite of society. I mean, I have so much in my life compared to my mom had. And I can go reverse. My son has so much more than I had. I have so much more than my mom had. My mom has so much more than her parents had. I mean, it's insane. And, and I marvel. I marvel at the achievements of human technology. I marvel at something. I'm just like, I cannot believe from when I was a kid till now. It, it blows. I mean, Waze. How did I get anywhere without Waze? I, I don't understand. I, I used to print MapQuest directions and read them. And people are like, oh, you shouldn't text when you drive. I used to have pieces of paper like this when I was driving. I mean, it was a little more dangerous. But, but I mean, like, technology is incredible. But it, it, the distractions to what's important have been exponentially increased. Mark 8.36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? You got everything. You don't feed and care for your soul. You have nothing. You have lost his disciples go out looking for food. People are hungry. They get back, and Jesus is like, I'm full in my soul. I'm satisfied in my soul. And disciples are like, who got this guy a pizza? We don't understand what you're saying. These were the disciples who couldn't get what he was saying, and they spent time with Jesus in those moments. No technological distractions. And they missed the point. How much more do we have to be aware? We, we live in the reality of restlessness. That's often our reality. Why? Because restlessness is a condition of the soul. It may manifest as anxiety or depression or anger or lack of joy or lack of contentment. But these are the things that spring out 
spring forth from the soul. But Jesus said in, in 13 and 14, he said, everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty, the water of the world. Thirst always. Whoever drinks the water I give them in their soul will never thirst. Even, listen to me, it's so incredible to me because a lot of times we look at ancient culture or 100 years or 300 years or five, and we kind of mock them for what they believed. We mock them like, you know, they thought they could cure this by this, or they remember they used to use bloodletting for everything. I'll just let blood out of the guy and he'll get better. I mean, and we like, this is this absurd. But, but even pagan, non-Christian cultures understood something that we miss. I heard a story of a, an English explorer. It's like 300, 250, 300 years ago. And he goes to Africa and he, he's going to explore. And he, and he hires tribesmen. And, and they're going out through the jungle, right? There, there's no path. They're creating a path. It's hard work. And they, they, they live in the jungle. The, the Englishmen didn't live in the jungle. And, and they work a whole entire day through the jungle, and they stop, and they rest. Next morning, they get up, and the Englishman's like, let's go. Let's continue our journey. And they're, they're not moving. And, and he's talking to the translator, like, tell them I'll give them more money. I want to keep going now. I don't want to wait another couple hours. And then they said something back to the translator, the tribesman. And they said, this was incredible. They said, what, what's, what, are they, what are they waiting for? And this was the answer they gave. They're waiting for their souls to catch up to their bodies. These, the, now we would say they were pagan because they didn't have Christ. But they understood something, tribesmen, middle of Africa, 300 years ago, had not yet been introduced to Jesus. They understood something that we, in 2023, we, we don't get. It's the soul. There was a, a great painter once, and I, I, if, I love painting illustrations because I think, I think artistry is one of the greatest ways to illustrate the work of God because God's the creator. There was this great artist once, and he was a great painter, great painter, and he's painting all these incredible pictures and, on these canvases, and someone gives him a challenge one day. They bring him a canvas ripped to shreds, ripped. Uh, the frame is intact. The canvas is ripped to shreds. And like, paint me a masterpiece. The guy tries, and he brings it back to the, the man who had brought him. And he's like, this doesn't look like a masterpiece. He goes, let me give you another one. He gives him another one, ripped to shreds. And this, this was like a, one of the best artists in the world, one of the best painters in the world. A, a mind to grasp uh, vibrant colors in such a way in which they flow that you and I were just like, that's, that's mind-blowing. The guy brings him another ripped canvas gives it back to him. This isn't, a, this isn't a masterpiece. And finally, the artist is just like, I, I cannot create a masterpiece on this ripped can. I need a whole canvas. Church, the canvas is the soul. And you can go, and I'm, I'm down with this, go to psychiatrists. Get on, if you need medication, you get on medication. Go to counseling. Do fitness, exercise, health, eat good. But all those things, if your soul is not intact, your soul has to be complete. Then those things added into the soul, it's beautiful. But those things are not the canvas. The soul is the canvas. And if you have a ripped up 
So you can take all the medication you want. Listen, you can stop drinking all you want. You can stop looking at porn all you want. If your soul is not intact, those things will not work like they're supposed to. Because God created the soul, prioritized the soul. Spend time in the word. I, I've been failing in that area. I'll be completely honest with you. But the thing when I say I'm failing in that area is I realize a difference. I realize how oh, business is good and training is fun and marriage is good, but I'm not prioritizing my soul. Things don't look like they should. Soul over stuff, even good stuff, even exercise, even medication, going to the doctors, all that stuff. Soul has to be in place, and your soul was created by Jesus and for Jesus. And if that's not whole and fixed, nothing you do is going to work out on you. Everything's going to fall exponentially short of its maximum effect. Soul over stuff. That's countercultural. Because the world we live in says stuff, stuff. Look at all this stuff. Look at all this new detox formula that will cleanse you of your toxins and you'll feel fabulous. Look, look, look at this new diet. Look at this new cosmetic surgery procedure. Look at all this stuff. And people are spending tens of thousands of dollars to create a masterpiece which is impossible without a whole soul in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are above all things. You are God. But I am thankful you are a gracious God. A God that is full of love and mercy for people. I am thankful that you're not a, a God of dropping the hammer to crush and destroy. You're a God of, of everlasting mercy, everlasting peace, and everlasting love. I just pray for everyone in this room, in this church today, well, that we would learn the countercultural Christ, especially that last point, soul over stuff. And no matter how much medication I take, how much I exercise, or I try to eat right, or I try to be a good father, or a good husband, or a good wife, if the soul isn't right in Jesus, nothing's going to work. No masterpiece will be created. Only in Christ are we whole. In Jesus' name, amen.